So good morning, y'all. Um, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that y'all are here. I'm thankful for the folks that are watching online, uh, on YouTube or on Facebook, and you may be watching this, and this may be Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. That sounds so weird to say, like I walked through a Stargate or something. But I'm thankful that y'all are here. I want to. I got two or three short little announcements, and then we'll jump in today. I want to mention again the event, the resurrection celebration that we're having on the 14th. Uh, the 14th, uh, it'll be at 6 o'clock at night. Um, and, and we're not having uh, worship that morning here. We're having worship that evening down on the land. And in, in light of that, uh, we've got a, a meeting for anybody that's serving. If you signed up to serve, there's a meeting today, uh, probably, probably next door, um, right after church today. And so I invite you to be there. You should have gotten an email. And if you had not signed up to serve but you want to serve, then I'd say stay as well. Also, part of that week, part of the week from the, uh, from the 8th to, the, to that Sunday is uh, we're doing a blood drive for the, with the Red Cross on Monday, the 8th, from 2 to 7. And so please go to redcrossblood.org, find our blood drive, and sign up for that uh, because there is a shortage in our country, and that is part of the church being the church. So I really want to encourage y'all to do that. Now, we are going to take a detour today from the series that we just started last week. I'm trying to feel like I'm kind of a, at least as your pastor, I'm kind of organized. I kind of methodically plan out messages six months or so at a time, and so it's a little unlike me personally to deviate from where we're heading, and today was going to be week two of this series, Walking Through Romans. Um, so this is an unplanned detour. It's an unintended sort of detour, but I, I feel it's a detour that the Lord has, has really put on my heart and really burdened me personally with to uh, based on the events of this last week in Minnesota and then all around our country, particularly the, the last couple of days and nights. And so truth is, I was watching Friday evening, watching, flipping from news channel to news channel and, you know, all the way into the wee hours of Saturday morning. And th at 3 o'clock or so Saturday morning, I just thought, you know what, I gotta, we got to talk about this. And I feel like, honestly, that I would be unfaithful to the task of being your shepherd if if I just ignored all of it and, you know, and didn't talk about it. And so, y'all, <clears throat> there are lots of different perspectives, lots of different angles that people approach this stuff from, different positions. I have but one, and that is the biblical perspective. You know, I'm not going to give you some economic angle. I'm not going to give you some political perspective. This is not a political uh, uh, message. It's not what we do. I'm not going to give you some some economic thing about it. You know, I, I feel super, super led to give us uh, what I believe the entirety of this book, what it says. What is God's perspective of <clears throat> what's going on in the country today? The focus today really, in fact, the focus of the biblical perspective on this, the root of all of it, y'all, the root of all of it is sin, and it is the depraved nature of the human heart. 
it's the depraved nature of my heart. Y'all, you know, I feel like so inadequate. I feel like I have a messed up heart. All of us do. Nobody is free from the heart disease that began way back in the garden, right? And so watching on Monday night or Tuesday, truthfully, <clears throat> watching the life choked out of, of this guy, the life choked out of George Floyd by a police officer earlier this week, and then watching all over our country, man, Thursday and then Friday night and into the wee hours, you know, of Saturday morning, you know, watching that chaos, the only word, it's like this one word kind of kept coming in my mind, and the word was disturbing. Like, it is so disturbing, and it made, just made me really think about, about us, about humans. And I'm going to tell you the most, maybe, the most disturbing image that is, that is painted, and truth is, it's the probably, it is the most accurate image of man that is painted throughout the scripture is in Romans chapter 3. And Paul's quoting from a couple of different Psalms. And he said, and look, I probably should have said this a minute ago, if you've got a worship God, the notes that are in the worship God have nothing to do with what we're talking about today. It's going to be for next week. The, the back of the thing that gives you a place to write on, if you want to write, write. But those were printed Friday and this kind of, the Lord changed this message on Saturday. So Romans chapter 3. And this is the only slide that's going to be on the screen. Because at the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. And so, and so that's all that's going to be up there. You're not going to have much fill in the blanks, but you've got a place to take notes. So Romans chapter 3, verse 10, starting verse 10. Paul writes, none is... Now I want you to think about this. This is the image that's painted of mankind. <clears throat> none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a clear description of mankind. He is corrupt. He is depraved. Jeremiah said that his heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. There is something <clears throat> deep inside of man that is so jacked up, that is so messed up, so wretched, y'all, so evil, so corrupt, that without God's intervention, without God's intervention, the result would just be eternal devastation. So the problem is not COVID-19. It's not unemployment. It's not a lack of education. It's not, it's not like materialism with too many possessions or, or too few possessions. Those are all symptoms, right? Those are all symptoms. Uh, they're real, though. Now, they're real symptoms. I'm not minimizing any of that because they are real. We all live in the world, and we see that. So these are symptoms of a big, big, big problem, and that problem is the horrific condition of the human heart, and none of us can get away from that. None of us. No race, no color, no, no national origin, black, white, blue, green, purple, it knows no bounds. Sin is the degrading and the damning power across all of life. Wherever you're from, whatever color your skin is, whatever it is, it infects every single man and woman who has ever lived on the planet. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, in verse 20, 
He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Not his culture, not his economics, bless you. Not education, not any lack of education, too much education, not anything outside, exterior to man pollutes him. What comes out of him is an indication of what is inside of him. Verse 21, he went on and he says, Out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and he goes on and on and on. It infects everyone. Y'all, it crosses racial bounds, ethnic, cultural, occupational. It infects, quote, the model citizen, and it infects, quote, the criminal elements. Sin is the problem. It's lawlessness. Y'all, it is rebellion. It darkens the road of life. It destroys relationships. It wrecks joy. It wrecks peace. It wrecks calm. It, 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 it pollutes love, and it steals honor. It messes up our minds, and it is impossible Y'all, hear this. It is impossible to fix with human effort. We can do nothing about it. I can't do anything about yours. You can't do anything about mine. And I sure can't do anything about mine. It is impossible to fix, y'all, with human effort. And so long as presidents and congressmen and, and, and congresswomen and city councils and churches with half gospels meet, and try to solve the problem in the ways of man, as long as all those entities meet and try to fix it with human sort of answers, it ain't going to work. Like, it's just not going to work. Now, with that said, of course, cities, states, countries, society can and ought to impose some laws that force man to submit to a code of law some rules, some regulations to, to kind of keep things in check a little bit. But y'all, the law does not change the heart. The law has never changed the heart. The law points to our sinfulness. The legal code today does it. The legal code on this side of the Bible 4,000 years ago, it didn't fix man. It pointed to the problem, y'all, of man. The law doesn't, never has, and never will change the heart of a man. But it's, it's, it's unimaginable probably to, to think of a society that's absent of laws and controls because sinful men and women would destroy everything to include themselves. What we saw this week was a little taste of just that. So there has to be some bit of a, some set of controls and God institutes two things, I think. He institutes the family first, and he institutes government next. And so a major duty of moms and dads inside of a family relationship is to teach and train young men and women, children, to teach and train them how to live in a society in a civil way and in a, in a, in a controlled way. Teaching children about accountability um, and about consequences. And then God ordains governments. Romans chapter 13, God ordains um, social control to be one of the roles of civil government. And you and I are to submit to the authority of the civil government. And I don't have time to dive in today into Romans 13. We'll, we will, it's for another day and we will get to that. But if the controls of the family and the controls of the civil government are just thrown out to the curb, 
the depravity of the human heart would just run absolutely, completely wild. Somehow, and I, I don't, I don't, frankly, I don't get it, but somehow the wickedness of man tells him in some severely messed up way that it's okay to sit on a handcuffed man laying on the ground with your knee on his neck for eight minutes. Something told that guy like that was okay to do. And in the same way, the depravity, that same depravity tells another guy that it's somehow it is okay to destroy your very neighbor's business and take all of his stuff and then burn it to the ground. Like that's okay. Something in their mind, in their heart said that that's just okay to do. And y'all, I'm not talking about protesting. Every one of us have a right to protest. Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we do. I'm talking about rioting and just destruction and violence. And I see all this stuff all week long, and I'm like, how do we even begin to address all that craziness, particularly those two issues right there? But you know what? Me and you have got at our disposal the infallible Word of God. And for so so long, our society has tried to address everything absent of God. We've just removed, at least tried to remove God from everything by removing his word from everything, by removing his word from everywhere. So all the, the, the quote, the authorities, they continue to attempt to solve problems Real problems. Like I'm not sitting here saying that these aren't real problems because they are. But we're attempting to solve these real problems, horrific problems, absent of God and his word. Absent from his perspective. And so I want to spend the rest of today looking at what is God's perspective. What is, what is how does he see and how does he view all of this stuff. And I think it's clear and I think it's simple. We can see it right in his word. I said several minutes ago that we have a fatal sin problem. First and foremost, if you don't realize that you have a, a fatal sin problem, then something's wrong with you. The only remedy to the sin problem of man is the gospel. The only hope for injustice is, is the gospel. The only hope for equity is the gospel. The only hope for peace, the only hope for freedom, the only hope is in Jesus Christ and the, the heart-transforming power that he brings. That is the only hope. You can look in all kinds of crazy places. Man, I did it for 37 years. Many of you have probably done it for many, many years. And you can look all over the place. And you're, what you're finding is false hope here and there, fleeting, fleeting false hope. The only hope is in Christ. The hope for Minneapolis and Detroit and Atlanta and San Francisco and Oakland and, and Washington and New York, all of that, y'all, the only hope for every city in the planet, including Columbus, Georgia, is in Jesus Christ. That, that is a definite amen. So, so how does this book identify the things that lead up the things that lead up to the things like we've seen over the course of the last week. And so the I ain't got no agenda. I got one agenda. There's not a political agenda. It's not. My agenda is to call all of us 
here listening on, on TV or whatever um, to call us into repentance and to call us into, into a faith that can be lived out in a way that will lead others into a saving relationship with Christ. That's the big picture of the scripture. So what does the Bible say about it? First, I think it says that we live in a society that values the high, a society that values the rush, a society that values um, the cheap thrill, the quick fix, a 280-character tweet. You know, the, that mindset does not effectively deal at all with human need. It's a quick fix. It's a make-me-feel-good remedy that does not work. It doesn't work. It's been noted that when, uh, when people who feel powerless loot and rob and steal, that it provides them with a powerful, intoxicating feeling, almost a feeling that the psychologists say that cocaine makes them feel, like that same feeling, like it's going to empower them. But it's a feeling. And so they say, but it makes me feel good. It's going to empower me. It's going to give me, it gives me pleasure to do that. Now think, they, they, they think that, but it's in total absolute conflict with what the scripture says. And y'all, it's not about the feeling. It's not about, it's not about a feeling. Like we have got to act sometimes. Hear this. There are many times in our lives where we have to either, we have to act despite the way we feel. If you're suffering from depression and you're curled up in a ball in the bed and you don't feel like getting out of the bed, there's times where you got to act despite the way you feel. And y'all, there's other times where we have to not act despite the way we feel. You may feel like punching the dude next to you in the face, but it ain't right. So you got to act, you got to not act despite the way that you feel. Talking about false teaching and people taking pleasure in wickedness in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, they count it pleasure to riot. They count it pleasure to riot. And then in, in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. We have a society that is consumed with pleasure, like, like it's all about, I need to feel good. I need to act in a way that makes me feel good. It's it's about pleasure and feelings and the thrill. Consumed with that, y'all, and when you live for that, it destroys dignity, um, it, it, it destroys respect, it destroys potential, okay? And then there's selfishness. The scripture speaks all over the place to selfishness. Whether we're talking about racial prejudice, discrimination, or the looting that we've seen. It's all selfishness playing itself out in life. I would imagine that there's nobody sitting in here watching. There's nobody, not one, who would disagree with the fact that there's never been a society as selfish and self-centered as today's society. Pride somehow has become a virtue. Like pride somehow is, is a, is like has become a good thing. There's a whole generation of people that believe that they matter above all else. Most of their parents raised them that way. It's all about you, little Johnny. It's all about what can I do to make you happy today? 
It's all about you. And so is it a shocker that you got 20 and 25 and 30-year-old kids who think the whole world is all about them? No. The TV pumps that thought up. The radio, social media, everything is all screaming like that same message that it's all about you. But the Bible says that God hates pride over and over and over again. All over the place. Proverbs chapter 8 says, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Pride wrecks relationships. It destroys kindness. It crushes love. And maybe above all else, y'all, it demolishes one of the greatest virtues of all, and that is humility. Humility. Proverbs 11 says pride brings disgrace. Proverbs 16 says pride comes prior to the destruction. Proverbs 29 says that pride is going to bring a man low. When we get all laid up with pride, everybody around us just is like a means to an end. If you're ate up with pride, you're looking at what can you do for me? What can you do for me? You're just a tool in my arsenal to serve me. Dude, look what James chapter 4 says. What, ca what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he's saying, what's the cause of the fight? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You want, but you ain't got, so you murder, James says. You covet. You covet, you want. Matter of fact, you covet means that you want what you got. I want what you got, but I can't obtain it. And James says, so you fight and quarrel. You want what you want because you set yourself up as the most important thing on the, world, on the, on the face of the earth. And if you can't get it, then I'm going to kill you. Humility, though, is a different story. Humble people can really love. Humble people can, can truly give and truly sacrifice. Real contentment really can only be found in humility. Only in humility can you and I live for the benefit of another person. Richard said when he was praying over the offering, Lord, let us use this for other people's forever. You cannot do that if you're prideful. You cannot. It can't happen. It can be done in humility. I will never forget, two, three years ago, we were in California serving at the Dream Center, you know, which is a um, sort of a place that serves in mass, serves people in all different kinds of walks of life, po most poverty-stricken folks. And so we were at, uh, on Skid Row. Skid Row in, in California, 14 in Los Angeles, 14,000 homeless people in the 54 square block area. 14,000 homeless people in this area. And we're standing there, and it's about 11 o'clock at night. Total, the stench, you cannot even imagine the way it smelled. It was a mixture of filth and feces and the smell of crack and marijuana. It was horrible. And I look right there, and I can see the Hollywood sign. From where we were standing, I can see the Hollywood sign. The wealthiest people on the planet living right over there. And it was a pretty good ways away, but we could see it. But we're standing in the squalor and the filth of just utter despair. 
how many of those people over there have ever come over here and put their arm around one of these guys and said, God hadn't forgotten you? Ever? Probably not. And then they want to donate these dudes making $20 million a movie. Stroke a check for $10,000 to feed the hungry and want a trophy and want to get on the TV and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Are you kidding? Like, are you kidding me? They're so smug and they're so clueless. They're handcuffed. Here's the deal, y'all. They're handcuffed to themselves. They're handcuffed to their own ego and their own selfishness. The sin of love and self will always lead to destruction 100% of the time. And a, like a child of a child of that, a child of that selfishness is, is stuffism. That's my own kind of word. Stuffism. Because we live in a society that values stuff. In fact, y'all, we live in a society that values stuff more than people. That makes sense? We value stuff more than people. And, 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 and truth is, it is a natural legacy of buying into the lie of evolution. Because, y'all, if man is nothing special, like if man is just nothing special, then a tree is a rat, is a dog, is a boy. All the same. It ain't no different if you squash a roach on the floor than if you squash a man in the street. That's the product. That's the, that's the 150 years later after evolution. And so it's a devaluing of human life. You cannot tell me that officer in Minneapolis with his knee on that guy's throat valued human life at all. You cannot tell me that. And the same is true with the folks that killed an officer in Oakland Friday night. They place no value on human life. They can pretend they did. That officer can pretend he does. Neither one of them do. You can't tell me that we value life when 40 million children are aborted every year. You cannot tell me that we value human life the way we should. God does. God does. He breathed it into us. Y'all, and then there's another sort of aspect to this stuffism thing, and, and, and that's the stuffism of the people that have enough stuff, more stuff, than they could ever use in a gajillion years while people lie in the gutter with absolutely nothing. And I am not saying, please hear me on this. I am not saying that it is the role of any entity, it is not the role of government, to take from the wealthy and give to the poor. That is absolutely not what I'm saying, but here's what I'm saying. Is when a man's heart is authentically changed, genuine, genuinely really changed by the Lord, he will in humility give and serve. He will because he's become a new creation. The old passed away and the new showed up. Now that's the image of baptism. When you come up out of the water, you're, it's like this, this image, this portrait of becoming a new creation. And when your heart has changed, you cannot be the same on the other side. You can't. You can't. You want an image of walking the walk? Read Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. The beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Listen, so number three is this high value that we place on things. And fourth thing, I think... The Bible addresses here is the danger of anger. And, and this little bit of the message, you might get mad at me. I've heard this 50 times this week, y'all. People have a right to be angry. 
What do you mean they got a right to be angry? Frankly, I've got to very respectfully kind of disagree with that. Anger is a sin. Nobody has a right to be angry. That policeman didn't have a right to be angry. A man running out of a sports bar, an African-American man running out of a sports bar with an African-American man and woman who poured their life into opening that sports bar, neighbors of the guy who broke the window, grabbed up all the liquor out of the bar and run out of the bar, and they're standing there and they're like, this is our place, and he just runs out. He don't have a right to be angry either. He don't. Nobody has a right to be angry. The Lord has a right to be angry. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, that word wrath is orge. It's also translated anger. But let me tell you, when that, when that word is, and it's used of man and it's used of God in Scripture, when it's used of God, it is always just, it is always good, and it is always right. He has a right to be angry when he's dishonored. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. James chapter 1 and verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Y'all, anger is just the venting of our flesh. That is all it is. Uncontrolled anger destroys always something. It destroys things or it destroys people. And at the end of the day, it almost always destroys the very one who's angry. Almost every time. Human anger is always always, always laying right next to hate. And hate is always intolerable. I don't care who it is that is the object of your hate, it is intolerable. Period. Period. Now, here we go. You may say, well, what about my enemy? What about the one who offended me? What about the one who did me dirty? What about the one who slept with my wife? What about the one who murdered my child? What about the police officer with his knee on this guy's neck? What about the people who, what about the guy who shot the officer in Oakland Friday night? What about the people burning down buildings in their neighborhood? What about all them? I got a right to be angry. What did Jesus say? Listen, what did Jesus say? His words, man, these aren't my words, these are his words in Matthew chapter 5. And you think about Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You want to learn what it, what it, what it sort of means to walk a Christ-like walk? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These are Jesus' words. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Like, what does that mean? Let me tell you, let me tell you the example that we're given. When Jesus, the Jesus that many of us claim to follow, when he was being slaughtered on the cross, all right, try if you can to put your feet up there where his were. He's being slaughtered on the cross. What did he say? 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is absolutely zero place. There is no place for anger and hatred. It is an offense to God. It is wicked. Any kind of hatred aimed at, at directed to anybody, no matter what they may have done to you, is outside of the tolerance of God, and it's a sin. Laying right alongside of the anger and the hatred is vengeance, and it is so tragic. It is so tragic, and this is what I thought about Thursday night, Friday night, and yesterday. It's this fear. It's fear, and it plays itself out. A policeman does something barbaric to a handcuffed dude laying on his stomach. Thousands of people strike back. Officers, law enforcement strike back. Tens of thousands of people strike back. Before you know it, you got all-out civil war. There's no place for it. Vengeance is not for me and you. It's not. And it is a deadly, deadly sin. Here's how it goes, and it kind of always um, sort of takes this progression. I'm the king of my universe. I do whatever I want to do because you ain't the boss of me. I got a right to have whatever it is that I want to have and I'll take it if I have to. And then I got a right to get mad. And if you get in my way, I'm going to vengefully take you out. Y'all, it is a sin. Every bit of that is a sin. What's Romans 12 say? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It's because this is God's perspective, man. This is the, how does God look at this? And then Paul goes on in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, anybody know what he says? If your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, what? Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll talk another day about what that means. But then he says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My prayer is that we will seek the face of Jesus and stop trying to overcome evil with evil. Your grandmama told you that. Then I grew up Jewish and my grandmama told me that. Stop trying to overcome. What did, what did they all say? Two wrongs don't make a right. They didn't make that stuff up. It came from the Bible, y'all. And then you got the divisiveness of prejudice. Any kind of prejudice. Like our culture, no, our world is ate up with this wickedness. Y'all, prejudice, racism, it is not some new phenomenon. You're to love your neighbor as yourself, no matter who your neighbor is. Even if your neighbor happens to be the one that hates you, right? You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He's on his way to Jericho. The Good Samaritan. Like, that's not a made-up word. It was a, it was a group of people. The good Samaritan. And he comes across a what? He comes across a Jew. And the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other's guts. Why did they hate each other? This is so stupid, y'all. Why did they hate each other? They hated each other because the Samaritans were Jews who intermarried with Gentiles and, quote, polluted the Jewish blood. That's why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And here a Samaritan helped this Jewish guy bound him up, clean him up, bandage him up, and took care of his needs. Shocking 
in that day. Acts 10.34 says that God shows no partiality. He made all races. He loves all races. He's merciful to all who call upon his name. The divisiveness of prejudice, it tears apart families and it tears, tears apart neighbors and neighborhoods and cities and states and countries. Guys, please hear this. Hear this like loud and clear. There are only two types of people on the face of the earth. In God's economy, there's not black and white and blue and green and purple and Chinese and Muslim and Jew and Gentile and Canadian and German. There's not any of that. There's two types of people, lost sinners and saved sinners. That's it. Like, that is it. I'm going to say something at the potential, again, of offending, but I'm okay with this. I had a, a friend and a mentor of mine, godliest man I've ever known, pastor of a, of a Southern Baptist church for 44 years. Same church for 44 years. And he said this one time. He said, if you think heaven's going to be all white, you're probably not going to be there. And I thought, whoa. How true is that? How true is that? So number six is this, this, this racism thing is the most ungodly, unbiblical, unchristian thing ever. And, and, and insidiously, like over the last several years, this is number seven. Over the last several years, there's just been this sweeping loss of respect for authority. And the media, left, right, middle, whatever, all of them, they throw kerosene on all of that. They're all inflammatory. Every single one of them are. It seems like every single one of them have lost the objectivity that they are supposed to have, and they crush, they just crush authority. And you end up with a society you couldn't care any less about those that are in authority. But God demands respect for the authority. Submit yourselves, Paul says, submit yourselves for the Lord's, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and, and the praise of those who do right. In other words, he says, submit yourself. Honor the king, he says. He says they have a God-given responsibility. They're not perfect, but they're essential to the well-being of a society. When an individual policeman, hear this one, when an individual policeman or anybody in authority commits a crime, Punish them to the full extent of the law. But don't throw the rest of law enforcement all up under the bus. Listen, man, the wholesale, what would the word be? Defamation. The wholesale defamation of the integrity and the character of the entire law enforcement community, that's nonsense. Like, that's just absolute, utter nonsense. It's just like the defamation and the integrity and, uh, or crushing the integrity and the character of an entire uh, race or class of people because of this person or this hundred people. That's just as nonsensical. Do y'all get that? It is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Should we be shocked at this total disrespect for authority that that results in civil unrest? and rebellion, and violence. Of course not. It just naturally flows, just like when a child has no respect for mom and daddy. 
What, what, what happens there? Rebellion and disobedience just rise up to the surface. Romans 13.2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Violence, rage, rebellion, anarchy in the 30 or so cities across our country is violence and rage against the Lord. Psalm 11 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. That's strong, y'all. The Lord hates the one who loves violence. We don't need to be violence lovers. Like, where is that coming from? And then number eight, you see the effect of drunkenness. And by that, I mean the abuse of alcohol and drugs. I'm not saying, I'm not, not, not saying there's something um, immoral about alcohol. There's something immoral about being a drunk, okay? There's not something wrong. You have a glass of wine, you have a glass of wine. I'm talking about being a drunk and being stoned all the time and being doing illegal drugs all the time. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what the scripture is talking about when it talks about drunkenness. I'm not sure that anything, I really am not sure that anything has done more damage to our community, all our communities, than the rampant abuse of drugs and alcohol. So is it any wonder that Scripture calls drunkenness a sin? Look at society. Here's what you see. You see a society that values the quick fix. You see selfishness. You see a culture that elevates stuff over life, stuff over people. You see anger. You see hate. You see vengeance. You see prejudice. You see a lack of respect for authority. You see civil rebellion, and then you see drunkenness. Here's the deal, man. Black, white, blue, Tall, short, red, I, I, I don't care from what country uh, or race you come from. None of us, y'all, none of us can escape the power of his own sin or the jacked up condition of the human heart. And the family and the government can curb the, the manifestations of that sin to some degree. And of course, we cannot live in a lawless society. But the only thing, the only thing that can create lasting change is the saving power of Jesus Christ. The only thing. You want to change self-centeredness? It's Jesus. You want to move folks to valuing people over stuff? It's Jesus. You want to see kindness and love prevail over anger and hate what you reckon it is it's Jesus you want to punch racism in the gut it's Jesus the world has got to hear about the transforming power of the cross y'all today's Pentecost what was Pentecost the birth of the church what's the charge of the church go tell the world about Jesus his last words on the planet in Acts 1 what were they? Go be my witness. Where? In my little area first and then out from there. The world has got to hear about Jesus. And then the world needs to see him in the walk that we have every day. They need to see him in the walk. It ain't a perfect walk. My heart's as messed up as yours. It's far from perfect. It's 
more jacked up than yours. But I want to walk, I want to walk in his sandals. Y'all, I want to walk in his sandals. Flawed, but I want to walk in his sandals. The world needs to see that. They need to hear it and they need to see it. If anything is ever going to change, it is the church that needs to lead that change. Why do you think our homeless ministry is out in the street? And people would get a meal without us? They would. But we get to talk about Jesus with them. Do they just all, is there thousands that get saved every Monday night we go out? Absolutely not. But it happens. Why does it happen? Because they see God's people conveying his gospel and walking in that gospel. They, they hear it and they see it. Y'all, he is the only one that can change the heart. It's Jesus, y'all. It's just Jesus. I want to read you, close this out. I want to read you what I think is one of the most beautiful pictures that's painted in Scripture, and it's in, in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. John, having a, his vision, looking in the throne room, the very throne room of the Lord. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Does that tell you there's a bunch of folks there? Odd, uh, yes. A multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and all languages, that is an image of black, white, blue, green, purple, German, Muslim, Hindu, Buddha, whatever, it's an image of the fruit of the mission of God's people. All kind of crazy colors are in the throne room. People that grew up in nutso traditions who landed at the foot of this cross. People who grew up seeking Allah and finding Jesus. You ever read that book? Go get it, it's a good book. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. People that grew up Jewish, they land at the foot of the cross. Y'all, people that grew up Wiccan, they landed at the foot of that cross. Black people, white people, red people, blue people, Republicans, Democrats, they all landed at the foot of the cross and they're all together in the throne room. God, can you imagine that? They're all to, we are all together in the throne room at the foot of Christ. Oh my gosh, that's the image that John sees. That is like the most beautiful image in the scripture. We want you to be in there. If you haven't landed yourself at the foot of the cross, we want you to be in there. The Lord wants you to be in there. He does. He does. If you turn the lights down, if you would. Um, that opportunity is a, it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I said this last week. It's an exclusive club that everybody gets to join. The price was paid with arms stretched out on that cross. And the blood that was shed on the cross was shed for you. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. 
but it was shed for black people and white people and purple people. Shed all the same. Y'all, and I just can't, like, why would anybody say no? Gosh, I'll never understand that. But I'm telling you today, let today be the day that you just, that you say yes. Let today be the day that you say, I do believe, and I want to be in that throne room at the end of the day. Simple, repent, and believe that the price that was paid on that, on that cross, that it, it, bought, it bought you back. It took care of your sin. Just say yes today. If y'all would bow your head with me. If that's you today, just simple prayer. Lord, I repent of my sin, and I believe that you died on the cross for me. Lord, save me right now. And he will. And he will. Father, we lift up, and I would invite everybody here, particularly um, if you want to come to the foot of this cross, physically come to the foot of this cross and pray for your salvation. I invite you down here. If you want to come down here and pray for our country, whatever it is, I invite us all to come down to the altar. That's not a pressure thing. It is available and it's always available. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to turn it back over to the worship team. Lord, I lift our country up to you. I lift the leadership of our country, the leadership of cities and states around our country. Lord, I pray for peace in the streets. I pray for justice in the streets. But Lord, more than anything, Lord, I pray that everybody would stop looking in the wrong places for justice and equity and peace and freedom. Lord, my prayer, our prayer as a church is, Lord, that we would look to you. Lord, that we would look to you for that. And it is in Jesus' name, amen. And I'll tell y'all, our prayer team is in the back as well after church. If you want to pray with somebody or somebody to pray with or for you, they're going to be in the back.